Good morning. Have a seat. It's good to see some faces out there this morning. At the same time, if you're still wearing a mask, that is perfectly okay. You are equally welcome. If you're still joining us online, uh, good morning. It is good to be together. That's not fair. Have you heard that before? One of the reasons why I think we can celebrate Mother's Day, and didn't Andrea and April just bless us this morning? <clears throat> I'm like, good night, you can have a little more time. Good stuff. We are blessed to have them as a part of our fellowship and to give their perspective of both the pain and the joy of this day. That's not fair. One of the reasons why I think we celebrate Mother's Day is because moms out there, you've had to endure that question or that statement. That is not fair. And as I was thinking about this, uh, reminded of my own mom, awesome mom, awesome, compassionate, loving elementary school teacher for years, and her students would often say, that's not fair. Her response, the fair is in August. (laughs) I love that. If you have a mom, one of the reasons why you ought to be good to your mom today is because you've probably said that to your mom, or she has felt those words, that's not fair. I'm kind of excited because, as I've said before, and I guarantee you I will say many, many more times, I'm going to be a grandfather in June. My own daughter has uttered those words a few times. As the oldest, our youngest gets away with murder. That's not fair. Let me just say you're probably right. We're just tired. (laughs) Kim and I do look forward to the day, though, when... Her child will look up at her and say, Mom, that's not fair. (laughs) And she'll say and be thinking to herself, I carried you for nine months. I fed you. I sacrificed for you. And you're going to tell me that's not fair. This morning, we're going to look at that statement, that's not fair. But we're not just talking about moms. We're talking about God. What does it mean to say that to God? That's not fair. What does fair even mean? My own grandmother, uh, fair to her meant equality. Equality to the point that at Christmas, sometimes one grandchild might get $10.52 in a stocking, another might get $7 because fair meant equal. The gifts had to be perfectly equal. But whatever fair means, when we look at God and we say, that's not fair. Have you been there? Have you said that? Have you felt that? Well, today, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul and we're going to look at Romans 9. And if you're going to go to one place in the Bible to address The question, is God fair? That's probably the place to go. It's also 
one of the most controversial, complicated, and hardest text to navigate. And I'm thinking to myself, why would we do Romans 9 on Mother's Day? And let me say this. I would say it to our moms and I would say it to everybody here. God has more for you than a Hallmark card. God has more for you. Nothing against Hallmark cards, but God has so much more for you today. Is God fair? And why does that question matter? Why does it matter in a theological sense? How I put this whole thing together, how I build my own kind of theological landscape and fit everything together? Why does it matter on a personal sense? Is God fair? Can I trust God? Can I find hope in a God who may not always seem fair to me? Now, we've been on this journey in the book of Romans. The first eight chapters give you a beautiful picture of the gospel. Beautiful picture. That God defeated, that, that Jesus defeated the power of sin and death, and that he rescues all who believe in him. That core gospel truth. We were on the height of the mountain last week in Romans 8. Oh, if God is for me, who can be against me? What can separate me from the love of God? Oh, wonderful truths. We get to Romans 12, and we have all these nice, practical, how do I apply this? 9 through 11 is a little rocky. We're getting into this question of God's sovereignty. And how does that apply? So we're going to go through some tough territory this morning. And even the next three weeks, 9 through 11, um, are not uh, rainbows and unicorns. Wonderful. Last week, little girl second service, was I, said, I mentioned rainbows and unicorns. She was literally coloring a picture of rainbows and unicorns and showed me after the service. I thought, that is awesome. If I ever say that, just hold it up. As a reminder that we believe in a God who is faithful through the hard times. God is faithful through the hard times. So I believe we can handle 9 through 11. So let's, uh, let's dig in. But there are three reasons why I think it's worth spending some time in 9 through 11. First of all, our story is a part of God's bigger story. Life is not just about you or me. You're part of God's family. God's family story matters. The response to the challenges of God's character that we will face today, we need to clarify in the midst of all the tension and craziness of our world. And we need to look at the confirmation of the consistency of God's Word. Because the big picture, big picture in 9 through 11 is this. Because God is faithful, because God is faithful, hope is available to everyone who believes. That hope is available to you today. So 9 through 11, we're going to look at how God worked in the past, how he works in the present, and how he will work in the future. Today, we're going to dig in to the past. So let me, uh, let's go. 
9.1, this is the Apostle Paul. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is in Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul opens up, and I want you to notice a few things here. Notice that Paul has real feelings for his brothers and sisters. Think of this, Paul, rabbi, Paul had Jewish friends, family, who had rejected Christ. I want you to hear his attitude. His heart breaks. He is in anguish. He says, I would be cut off for them. I could stop right here and preach from that. we got 100,000 people in our community who don't have a church home. Does that mean all of them are apart from Christ? I don't know. I have family and friends who don't know Christ. I'm sure you do too. Does your heart break? Does it break? Do you lament? Now here we have a hint of Moses would say a similar thing way back in the day. Jesus himself would actually pay the price. And Paul is reflecting that. I also want you to think about Paul's audience here. Paul has both a Jewish Christian audience and a Gentile Christian audience. Can we all just get along? What role does the Old Testament play? What role does Israel and all the patriarchs and all that, what role does that now play? He's going to bring this together. Again, this isn't Paul uh, standing in front of a huge church. This is Paul who has written a letter, given it to Phoebe. She's carried it miles and miles, and then she is reading it to these small house churches. Probably a little Q&A, probably a little tension in the room, but this is what we have. So let's continue. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. So what would the charge be? What is Paul getting at? He's talking primarily to the Jewish Christians here. Hey, Paul, it seems like the story has changed. Is this really one consistent story, or has God changed his mind? Is this this somehow plan B? Is this whole Jesus thing that you have rejected? Is this plan B, or is it a continuation of the story? But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Now, Paul's going to go on here. And we're going to get into some Old Testament stuff. And some of you are going to say, ah, 
I know all these stories. I'm a Sunday school graduate. Yes, preach it. Others of you are going to say, well, this is kind of new to me. Wherever you are, that's wonderful. Some of you might say, you know what? I really just want to go get some coffee and some donuts, and I'll come back when you get to the application point. I would say, hang in there with me. Hang in there with me. Now, this is not complicated, but it is hard. I'm going to forewarn you. So let's dive in. Paul says this, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise has said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now let's get the big story here. This is Abraham. This is Sarah. God is starting over here. This is after the flood. He's going to build a new nation. The promise is going to go through the line of Abraham. Abraham, not always a man of great faith himself, tried to pass his wife off as a sister a few times to keep from getting killed, went to his servant, maidservant uh, Hagar, and said, hey, God hasn't really followed through on his end of the deal yet. Why don't, uh, Sarah says, Abraham, why don't you go sleep with uh, with Hagar and, and have a child, aren't you tired of waiting on God? So there'll be two sons. There'll be Ishmael, child of Abraham and Hagar, but then there will be Isaac, and God will work through the line of Isaac. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated." Anybody feeling good about that verse? There's some hard stuff that we need to deal with here. How does God work? God's work is always dependent upon Him. He is always the first mover. God's character does not change. It does not depend upon our moral performance. Jacob and Esau in the womb, nothing good or bad about their character that would determine this. God is in charge. God is the first mover. Now, as he, as he uses this harsh line, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. This is where you got to be a little bit of a student of the Word. It's okay to be a student of the Word. It's okay to dig in. Last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. In that, there's this dialogue, and part of what I'm taking you through is a dialogue of conversations about the goodness of God. 
And we see in Malachi, we see that uh, the prophet is talking uh, with the people, and they're wondering, hey, why are we in this messed up situation? As will often be the case. 500 years before the birth of Jesus, during a time of exile, the prophet speaks for God. I have loved you, he says to the nation, but you have not taken me seriously. Their response, God, how have you loved us? Can't you see the situation we're in? What about Esau? Where was his blessing? Didn't he get a raw deal? Have you ever asked that question to God? This is strong language. Sometimes we want to just back off from it and soften it. I don't want to do that today. It's hard, it's complicated at times, but let's leave it as it is. Paul anticipates our questions. One of the things I love about the Bible is um, God allows us to ask questions. God allows us to debate. We get a window into these debates about the very nature of God. Paul continues, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? It's a fair question. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Again, we got to pause the, in many ways, we're watching the film of the Old Testament, and we got to pause for a minute. We got to go back to Exodus 33, and we go back to Moses, and the people have, um, Moses has, has been up on the mountain, he's receiving the Ten Commandments. And while they're down below, they're tired of waiting on God. So what do they do? They gather up the gold, they make an idol, they make the golden calf, have a big party, there's problems. Go back, read the story. Moses, God's angry. Moses will intercede. He will try to intercede. He will say this. Now, if you would only forgive their sin... If you would only forgive their sin. Now, now look at Moses here. They've, they've disobeyed. If you would only forgive their sin. But if not, erase me from the book you have written, God. That's what Moses says. You hear Paul's echo of that. What's God's response? Whoever has sinned, I will erase. Now go lead the people. Moses says, will you still be with me, God? How will I know? Will you show me your glory? And this is where we get this scene where Moses is in the cleft of the rock and God will only show him a part of his glory. And then God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Paul continues, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name, my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens 
whomever he wills. So we have Moses and we have Pharaoh, and we have this this very important phrase, hardening of the heart. So what happens to Pharaoh? Well, we see earlier where Pharaoh, Scripture says Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and then we also see where God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Both can be true. It's not like Pharaoh was this just great guy looking for a way to let the Israelites out. And then God hardened his heart. He was already on that path. We're reminded of Romans 1, 24 to 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. God is allowing this to happen. I like the way Tim Keller says it. He says, when God hardens someone, he doesn't create the hardness. He simply allows the person to go his or her own way. God hardens those he wants to harden, and all those whom he hardens want to be hardened. Paul continued, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You see what Paul's doing here? It's this whole Old Testament thing, and he's taking him from one scripture to another. Now he's going to Job. He's going to Job. Do you know the story of Job? Pause. Let me pause the film for a second. Let's talk about Job. Remember, uh, Job was the one Big, long story, don't have time to paraphrase the whole thing, but everything was taken away from Job. Would he still trust God? So Job's family is taken away, his stuff is taken away, and all he wants from God is a why. Have you ever asked God why this has happened? Why would you allow this? So what's Job's Response, well, let me give you 57 reasons and a rationale for why this happened. No. Basically says, hey, who are you to question me? Brace yourself like a man. Where were you when I laid out the foundations of the world? So we hear this echo of Job. Let's continue. What, will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is like a who's who of the Old Testament. Sometimes I feel like I'm, I, I'm showing you my favorite movie and you haven't seen it. And I need to pause and explain all the backstory. So who is this? This is Jeremiah. God has gone to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet and uh, you know, the people have, uh, 
As they often have done, the people have rebelled. They're not where they would want to be. And what does God do with Jeremiah? He says, I'm going to take you to the potter's house, the literal potter's house, spinning the pot on the wheel. And the question before God is, why aren't things better? What does God do? Well, hey, you all are the clay. I'm the potter. I'm the creator. I have that authority. I have that authority to do what I will do. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Let's continue. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now, who was Hosea? Another prophet. What did God say to Hosea? God said this to Hosea. If you haven't read the Old Testament, it's just fascinating sometimes. He says, Hosea, this is what I want you to do. You are a prophet to an unfaithful people, so I'm going to give you an object lesson. I want you to go marry a prostitute, Gomer, who is unfaithful. Because I'm going to demonstrate to you my scandalous grace. So we get a glimpse of this. And then we get to Isaiah. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant, only a few of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. Not by your family tree, not by your good works, but by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The great prophet Isaiah, it is faith, not the law, that matters. Beginning to end, this has been the story. Now, we've watched this film of the Old Testament. We've seen the big guns of the Old Testament. We've seen this picture. Now, is God fair? Is the fact that God saves some and not others fair? Is it just? Is it right? Have you ever wrestled with that question? Have you ever 
pause long enough in the busyness of our life to really think about that? Now, in some ways this is a mystery. In some ways this is very clear. I like the illustration um, D. James Kennedy uses to answer this question. He says this basically, and I'm going to paraphrase. Imagine there were five guys, not the burger chain, but five guys who set out to rob a bank with evil and malice, bad intentions in their heart. They're going to go rob a bank, and they're friends of yours. You've got bad company. Five friends, they go out to rob a bank, evil intent in their hearts, and you plead with them. Don't go rob the bank. I don't care what you say. I'm going to go rob that bank. So one of them you get a hold of and you tackle them and you wrestle them to the ground. Four go rob the bank. It goes south. Some of them get, they they kill a guard. They end up in jail. They get life sentences and all these things. It ends very poorly for them. But the one that you saved, the one that you tackled, doesn't go to jail, doesn't die. And he says to you, wow, I'm a man with a good heart. I am a man with a good heart. I, of my own accord, I said, you know what, I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn from my evil way. I'm going to follow a righteous path, and I will be spared, unlike my knucklehead friends. No, 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 no. Where was the evil? In all of them. And at some level, that's us. We're all on that pathway of destruction. Kennedy says this, the only reason that he is free is because I restrained him. He said, so those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Thus we see that salvation is all of grace from the beginning to the end. So what is the basis of your salvation? Who ultimately has authority in your life? And why does it matter? Well, I believe your hope is ultimately dependent upon your confidence on who is in charge. Let me say that again. Your hope is dependent upon your confidence in who is in charge. So what is your foundation for hope? And how do you really know? Let me give you a test. What do you do when you feel like you're out of control? Anybody felt that way this week? I don't mean you just, you you look exteriorly out of control, but somewhere inside you, somewhere externally, internally, you feel like you are out of control. Some of you clean and organize. I know people like that. There's people I dearly love that are that way. Some work out frantically. Some try to escape for a minute. Some of you do something that just makes you feel better. Some sleep. Some can't sleep. 
Some stop eating, some start eating. At my best, I go for a long walk and I pray. But I'm not always at my best. Sometimes I just grab a bag of chips and I watch an action movie that has a real simple ending where the good guys win. But here's the thing. None of those things really change anything, do they? But what are your options? Well, when you're out of control, when you feel that way, where do you find your hope? Is it something inside you? Is it your, your goodness, your willpower, your skill set, your grit? Is it something outside of you? Is it your circumstances, the stock market, which people tell me is going to go down eventually? Is it how others treat you? What you receive from others, their approval, their encouragement, their validation? All these things can be taken away from you. Here's the great news, though, and here's the truth of God's sovereignty and God's authority. God has something better for you. God has a foundation that is stronger. So what are we challenged to do? To turn to him, to trust in him, for, for God to be our first Response, because he offers a better foundation of hope. Now, how ultimately do you know that you can trust God? How ultimately do you know that that's true? We've done some hard work in the Old Testament. We can look at all those arguments. And my friends, there are books upon books upon books upon books, commentaries upon commentaries, debates upon debates. You can get there the easy way the quick way, or the short way. But here's what I want you to see. All of that is going to point to one more thing that's going to enter the film, and that is Jesus himself. Jesus himself will enter the film. Jesus himself will enter the debate. The one who lived a perfect life, the one who did have the right to say to his father, this isn't fair. The one who did say to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who was put to death on a false charge by an angry mob, he's the one who died for you. And that was God's plan from the beginning. So as we look at this big question of is this fair, can I ultimately trust God? It's ultimately a binary decision. I can either trust God, I can believe that he's good, that he's in control, or I don't. Those are really the two options. I'm a process guy, I'm a nuance guy, but when you really cut through it, it's either that or it's that. Can I ultimately trust God? Can I ultimately build my foundation of hope? Because he is good and he is in charge. That, my friends, is what is before us today.
So wherever you are, maybe you today for the first time, maybe today is your day. You say, I've trusted in all these other things. I've played church for a while, but today's the day I'm simply going to respond and say, God, I trust you. Or maybe you simply say, I'm, I'm tired of messing around. I'm going to fully trust God and follow him, independent of my circumstances, independent of how I feel. I am going to trust God fully. Would you respond today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good to us. We thank you that you have authority. We thank you that you are in control. And Father, as we look at this whole picture of the debates in the Old Testament, we're so thankful that ultimately the answer is found not in perfect logic, not in a huge argument, but it's found in you, Jesus Christ. And we say thank you. May your spirit work on our people today to respond. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.